0: best thing to win the masters you, you will be here forever as long as you are still alive so that's the best thing i'm very happy
1: welcome to the 101st episode of talking golf history and proof that the show didn't end after the 100th episode today we have a podcast on the history of augusta national that you won't find anywhere else this is the prehistory of augusta national this is the prequel. What events happened in the past on this very property where legends stroll? How did it become a golf course, and how did it reach international fame before a golf ball was ever struck on the property? We welcome golf historian Greg Lamb to the show, who has done an extensive dive into the prehistory of Augusta National. If you are a book publisher, listen in, because I think there's a tremendous book in this tale that Greg is about to weave. Before we start our show, a quick plug for Historic Golf Holes. As we are about to enter Masters week, have you ever thought about how amazing it would be to have the 12th hole of Augusta National in your backyard or perhaps in your city's park or your place of business. Historic Golf Holes creates some of the world's most famous golf holes and designs them out of synthetic grass no mowing, no need for watering or pesticides, just golf. This isn't just a putting green. Historic golf holes make synthetic greens that are designed to be played. For more information, shoot me an email at the society of golf historians at gmail.com. Without further ado, episode 101 before Augusta national. Greg, thank you for joining us on Talking Golf History.
0: Thanks, Connor. I appreciate you having me on today.
1: Greg, you've done extensive research on the history of Augusta National. How did you end up taking this path?
0: Well, it's one of those things, when you're a golfer and you've gone to Augusta National, you love the history and you love the traditions that they have. But you always wonder, is there a little bit more Uh, And that's what kind of sparked my interest years ago in saying, you know, what is it with this property? I mean, we all know the famous quotes from Bobby Jones about, you know, this land has been laying here forever for a golf course to be put on. But I always wondered, you know, is there a little bit more to the story? Uh, You hear a lot about the Berkmans and a little bit about Dennis Redmond. So I just hope to kind of get into that past history and kind of just hope to share the information that I've learned uh, over time. And hopefully the listeners will kind of enjoy the history of it.
1: Oh, I think they're going to love it. But I like when you first got into it, where you were like, Am, I'm just going to study this property or were you studying the masters and then you backed up to it? Like, how did it come about, you know, you looking into the extensive history of just the property?
0: Well, for me, it was really kind of digging in. You go to the source, uh, and the real source for a lot of us historians has been the story of Augusta National Golf Club by Clifford Roberts. Uh, We've all kind of just kind of either dived into that book and read it a little bit more. Uh, And the more I dug into it, the more I wanted to know. And I knew a lot about the Berkmans, uh, a little bit about Dennis Redmond. But you also wondered, you know, why did this clubhouse be the way it is? you know, why are the plants, uh, named for each hole? So, so it is one of those things that you kind of dive into and just kind of want to know a little bit more as a historian. Uh, you probably know as well as I do, Connor, you start digging and sometimes you hit ruts and pass, and sometimes you just keep finding more ore and you keep going deeper and deeper. Yeah. And deeper.
1: Those are the best moments, aren't they? Like,
0: yes, they are.
1: Oh, wow. You know, a eureka moment. How long have you been researching Augusta National and its history?
0: It's been about, I would say about at least active the last nine to ten years. So
1: Wow. And then help people out. The non historians or perhaps they want to be a historian. Mm-hmm. You know, in this research, obviously, you know, the books about Augusta National give us a hint, a look at a snapshot, if you will, of the property. Yes. Where else did you have to go to find this information?
0: I mean, in order to dig, you know, I, it actually, I had to reach out to a lot of historians. I have to really thank uh, some people that kind of gave me some introductions that I've never thought I would ever uh, meet in my life. One of them was Frank Christian, uh, the photographer and historian for Augusta National for years and years and years. Uh, it was other people uh, around the property and associated with the property. Uh you know, is really just kind of trying to figure out how deep I could actually go and trying to get the truth and the correct story behind Augusta National. Because as you know, Connor, history uh, will kind of show over time that, you know, there are some myths, there are some oh, truths, sometimes yeah. they're intertwined. So.
1: Yeah. And and it, it's it's, I mean, it's so true in history, golf history as well, as
0: if you say a
1: myth long enough, it becomes a fact.
0: Yeah,
1: and then you have to try to dispel that fact, and even though you try and try, it's really hard to overcome the myth.
0: It it really is, and you know, I I hope I can kind of share a little bit of my, you know, research and knowledge on Augusta National, and again, always have a disclaimer. Uh, when it comes to uh, this research and everything, is that, you know, this is my research. I've gone into it. As we know, some information kind of gets deeper. Some information is a little bit longer. But going in and digging into the information I have, I think this is probably the most accurate uh, record that I can come up with. And of course, it'll always change over time when more information comes up. Have, Have you thought about writing a book about it by chance? Honestly, have. Uh, you should really have because it really is a great story. Unfortunately, like many of us that, you know, listen to podcasts and play golf, we have nine to five jobs. That's
1: nah, so true. Yeah, so true. Is.
0: So uh, this is kind of our hobby uh, that we do on the side. And, you know, I, eventually one day I would love to uh, write a book about it. But I think this is a good way just to kind of share the high points.
1: That's right. And when you release the book, fun. we can re-release this podcast and just get the fervor going, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Maybe you get a publisher who reaches out and says, you know, Greg, I want to give you an advance. Let's do that.
0: Hey, that, that would be great. Publishers, cool. I
1: hope you're listening. <laughs> so let's dive in. Let's turn back the clock. How far back can we go on the history of Augusta National's property? Where do we start?
0: Well, I think the best to start onto is when it was Native American land. So you're going back you know, in that history, the area is actually really rich in some just general history when it comes to the American Indian population that was there. Uh, there were actually three tribes uh, that were in the area, and it include the Cherokee, the Chickasaw, and the Creek. Uh, and with the Savannah River and Ray's Creek, of course, with those natural uh, waterways that were in those areas, it brought about a lot of agriculture, a lot of trade, Uh, between the three groups i will admit as a historian i kind of jumped on i really thought that the people that had settled on the area that now is augusta national was originally the creek indians you know i really studied that quite a bit and actually came into basically a dead end when it came to research
1: yeah Uh, right i mean it happens right it it does does.
0: yeah i mean there some there are books and publications that will only get you so far uh, and luckily, I have a great person that introduced me to uh, Frank Christian and got to speak with Frank a little bit about you know the history of the property and actually came to find out it was more of a Chickasaw camping area. So that area was very rich and already it was, you know, you have the Savannah River. Uh, that's kind of north of the property, and then you have Rays Creek, which is kind of south of the property uh, that we know of now. But you always hear when golfers go to Augusta National, the one thing they always talk about is the elevation. And you have to remember that elevation when you think about this, because as, as water falls and it gives life and everything else to the plants and everything that happened in that area, it's going to naturally roll down so as the savannah river goes up it actually rolls down and if you've ever been to the tournament and you actually hear a lot of the caddies talk about it they actually want to see how the greens roll when it rains so you kind of always and you always hear the old adage well everything pulls to raise creek yeah which makes sense
1: right that's the lowest part of the property hence why there's a creek there
0: Exactly. So it, there for a while, it was, uh, you know, it was a Chickasaw camp area. Uh, there was a trade that happened in that area, like I said, between the Cherokee and the Creek Indians uh, at the time. But it was also a little bit more uh, important than what we thought at the time. Um, and of course, if you've read the story of Augusta National by Clifford Roberts, uh, there's a little little blurb in there. And I know it's been a controversy for a lot of people when it pops up, but there was actually an Indian burial ground.
1: Yeah. uh, I was going to get into that. I I mentioned it before on the podcast and Twitter. Yeah. Tell us what we know about the 12th hole, the green.
0: Yeah. The 12th hole, you know, one of the most famous par threes in the world, uh, when we look at it. Uh, But when Clifford Roberts uh, and, Bobby Jones bought the property and were working with Alistair McKenzie on actually uh, designing the property, pulling everything up. They actually found an old ancient Indian burial ground, and they believe it is the Chickasaw Burial Ground because of the notion that a lot of times is that the spirit would flow through the water and give life and uh you know, nourishment to future generations and the crops and everything else. So it is interesting now that, you know, as golfers, we watch the masters and all and watch the 12th hole, you know, and just to think about that when it was excavated, that they actually did find uh, an Indian burial ground. Now, to my knowledge, all those uh, remains were taken away and then also properly disposed of in a cemetery.
1: I mean, it's, I mean, it's eerie, the Amen Corner has an Indian burial ground or dead, right?
0: Well, it does. But you also have to remember a lot of times when you watch the shots, you know, you hear about the wind whirling uh, with uh, golfers that make the shots there on 12 that, you know, wind will come up and whirl the ball. And you think you've got enough, but the wind will actually push it back into Race Creek. Uh, so it's always one of those things to me about someone being pure of heart, you know, in order to make the true shot. So.
1: I love it. So <laughs> that's that's more fact than myth. Yes. I is. mean, that's one of those things that I've heard, you know, many times. But it's like, you know, how, how do you verify something like that? Is it something that was myth that we said so many times, you know, that it became a fact? I, I don't suppose we have, I, I, I'm, I'm sure it happened so long ago. Do we have any dates on the burial ground? Do we have any idea like
0: how I mean, far back was that went? pre-war. I mean, you're looking all the way back. You know, I was going to kind of get into the history. I mean, you're looking at anywhere from, you know, the sixteen, seventeen hundreds, 1700s almost. Uh, and it kind of goes into the early 1800s. Uh, there's not an exact true, true date. Uh, we know that it was excavated. There's not a lot of land records for that area in, um, Richmond County, Augusta. So it does take, uh, some things, but we will get into some of the landowners, uh, as we go on through the, uh, podcast and everything else.
1: Yeah. yeah well, let's jump into it. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of known things when it came to, uh, Native American tribes moving through the property. We know, you know as you mentioned, three um, that you know were on the property, trading on the property, uh, essentially burying their dead, obviously, on the property. Uh, what, who, who do we know of as the first known landowner of the property that we now know as Augusta National?
0: Yeah, no problem. Uh, well, with my research, it goes back. And the first true landowner that I see is actually James Lindsay Coleman. I'll get into a little bit of a story about James Lindsay Coleman uh, and then Augusta Judge Benjamin Warren, and that'll kind of bring into a little bit of our kind of story behind Augusta National and, you know, what I think are, you know, the uh, individuals that really made it what it is today and why the property is so well known throughout the Southeast, Uh, not only. Uh, for its fruits, but also for its ornamental plants.
1: Yeah. Well, dive in. Let's just go right into it. Tell us the story.
0: As I always say, there's always a big bang uh, that happens uh, that kind of changes everything. You know, you have to think about where Augusta National is. It's in Georgia in the south, uh, which predominantly in the south, there was a lot of cotton production. Cotton production was the number one producer, you know, product Basically, in the South for years and years and years, but things always change. And the one thing that came about uh, was the Cotton Crash of 1843. So, you know the old adage of "Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Invest all your farm <laughs> in one product." And at that crash in 1843, cotton got it got down as low as six as low as six cents per pound.
1: Do you, Do time. we know but how f- far of a drop that was? Do you know where it was prior?
0: Before it was, you know, trading probably around 12 to 15 cents. Oh, wow. Okay. Around. Yeah. So
1: a, dr- a full dropout. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Full dropout. At that time, it was one of those things that, you know, cotton production was, you know, the main thing and no one really thought a lot about diversification. So we'll kind of get into a little bit about that as we go through. But there was always that big bang and that kind of starts the reason why was the property kind of not a, Cotton plantation. You know, there's been a lot of questions about, you know, why was it, you know, with it so
1: prevalent throughout the South in this area, why wasn't cotton harvested here?
0: Exactly. Exactly. So that kind of brings us into our first major player that, you know, really brings a lot of information uh, to the area, uh, kind of pulls in a lot of uh, knowledge and kind of shapes the way uh, we see a lot of different things uh, about. Uh, augusta national in the south and uh, the way we look at it but the person that is is dennis redmond dennis redmond was a native uh, of ireland uh, later immigrated to new york and became a printer in that area he came into the picture after the cotton crash with some local men recruiting him uh, basically with a new publication in augusta that publication uh, was the southern cultivator and dennis was kind of a you know, this is a bright new world. This Mm -hmm. is the new, this
1: is, I assume somewhere is this, are we talking about the 1850s now or are we still 1840s?
0: No, no, we're still in like the 1840, around 1845.
1: Okay. Right after the crash, basically.
0: Yeah. Right after the crash. So, you know, the South was trying to look at a new way of, you know, without cotton, what is the next big thing? And the idea that these gentlemen brought about with the Southern cultivator it was one of the first publications. It was the first agricultural publication in the South, and it promoted the idea of fruit production, along with silk, wine, wheat, uh, and improved livestock instead of cotton.
1: So prior to this time, were, were they, was fruit production big in the state of Georgia, or is this kind of something completely new to the area?
0: It was kind of something kind of new. It was something that people were dabbling in. Ah, uh, because at that time cotton was king. You know, you knew you could make cotton and you know make money off of that. But it was more of a kind of garden decoration idea at that time. Uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, fruit production uh, in that area uh, at the time. There were some apricots, you know, pears. We'll kind of get into so, that.
1: Story. So you're saying it really was was it not yet the peach state?
0: It was not yet the peach. Interesting. We'll get into that. Yeah, I
1: mean, sometimes you just assume that went on, you know, all the way back to the 1700s for all you think, right?
0: Exactly. So, no, at that time, it was not really well known as a peach or fruit producer at that time. So, but it all based on, you know, Redmond was a traveling person and wanted to see a lot of, you know, what was going to be the new thing for agricultural in the, you know, not only the South, since that's where the Southern cultivator was, that was his job, but he was trying to think of this idea of, you know, he loved this idea of, you know, planting roots somewhere like a tree and it would grow and thrive and produce fruit for generations and generations. That kind of idea of the American dream tied into a fruit tree that he just fell in love with.
1: You could almost argue he was like the real Johnny
0: Appleseed, except it was pears. (laughs) Pears and peaches, right? With more than just apples. Yeah. But no, uh, with Redmond's Travels, uh, with the Southern Cultivator, uh, he was inspired. You know, a lot of individuals get inspired when they travel uh, and see different things. He was really inspired by the Atlanta residents of Richard Peters. Richard Peters used fruit trees uh, for ornamental and production reasons. Also, Redmond was inspired by the writing of uh, Andrew Jackson Downing, uh, who was a successful orchard owner and author in Newburgh, New York. Downing focused on the idea of fruit trees being an important part of a person's home and lifestyle. So that's kind of where we see that new idea of fruit trees being kind of on your property in order to supplement you know your livestock and everything else that you may have,
1: but also kind of ornamental. Is that true?
0: That is true because of the way uh, things different, plants will actually bloom. So yes,
1: yeah. How about that? So ornamental as well as obviously livestock feed and food for others. Interesting, exactly. but but they were really thinking of it. It sounds to me that they were looking at it more from a residence, not necessarily a fruitland perspective. Right.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Their their idea was more your local home, your area that you own, not more of a commercial production nursery at that time. So
1: Interesting. Yes.
0: Yeah. So uh, but the one thing that r- really sparked Redmond uh, and the kind of start really kind of digging into our story was that he was really encouraged by a new form of a fruit production facility. And also indigo, that was a growing demand product. You know, he really thought that this indigo was going to be the next best thing uh, because it was used for dyes uh, and a lot of use. So, a lot of times when you look back on the history of the property, you will see Redmond actually referenced as an indigo plantation owner. So, hmm.
1: I did not know that. Right. Yeah. Yes. Indigo.
0: <laughs> exactly. But we'll we'll also know, uh, like I was talking about, we'll get into a little bit of the actual area itself. But it all did start with uh, James Lindsay Coleman. Uh, you know, this is the gentleman that I found out uh, that actually owned, at that time, it was an 800-acre orchard just west of Augusta, which we now know is that west area where Augusta National is, all the way out to 20 and up. Uh, that we see. Redman visited uh, the site and wrote a story about the crop diversification for the southern cultivator. The land had over 50 types of apples, 40 types of peaches, plums, pears, apricots, and nectarines. At that time, it was just unheard of of all these different types of fruits kind of being produced and planted in that area. It was something new to the south and the area in general, uh, to just have these different types of, uh, trees, especially at this level. So.
1: And over 800 acres.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: I mean, what, a, I mean, I, if I'm sure for the time in the area, that's was somewhat of a tremendous risk, I assume.
0: Yes, it is true because it was west of what was known as the port of Augusta, uh, I guess it was really more focused on the downtown area and with it being on the banks of the Savannah river. So,
1: and that didn't work out so much for Coleman.
0: No, it didn't. So thanks the risk did not
1: necessarily pay morning. off is where you're about ready to go. Right.
0: Yeah. As, as we see, uh, Actually, uh, Mr. Coleman actually started having some financial troubles with the size of the orchard and uh, the production and everything else, uh, and actually start, started subdividing the orchard that was then sold to Judge Benjamin Warren. Benjamin Warren and then sold, in 1854, 315 acres to Dennis Redmond, to which he named the new Fruitland. So this is an important step in that process. Uh, because again, Dennis and this Redding is the
1: Augusta National property—that 315 acres, or at least part of it, correct?
0: It, it's actually a little bit larger. Okay, uh, than what is Augusta National now? So, uh, but yes, it is a large area. In as of area. today, anyway. Yes, as of. Today.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you also you have to preface that as of 2023 <laughs> is
0: slightly larger. Exactly. Yes. Why well, slightly? There's larger. always
1: an expansion going on.
0: <laughs> but. You know, a lot of people question the idea of fruit land. Why why that name? Redmond was really, again, into this idea of planting these trees and growing. He really thought it was a metaphor for the American idea. So he really wanted to, with that name, he wanted to change the naming from a plantation to an orchard. Uh, At the time, you know, plantations were very large and used throughout the South, but he really wanted to change that kind of naming convention to more of an orchard. And Fruitland was really the best uh, naming that he had for it at that time. So as he gets into it, sometimes our ideas and dreams are more than we are. So (laughs) uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, he was also very into indigo. Uh, The indigo actually failed on the property.
1: By the way, I mean, who knew that anybody would want to get that big into Indigo?
0: Exactly. <laughs>
1: Doesn't seem like something I'd chase, but I, apparently I, I see the math there. So, but it, it, it didn't does. work. I mean,
0: you end up, you know, running after things that you think are going to work. But the one thing that did kind of take over was. You know, he really started planting these fruit trees based on this idea and also some ornamental flowers because they learned that with people kind of being in the area and moving, you know, they wanted to decorate their homes with these gorgeous trees and flowers. Uh, And we kind of still see that today in the Augusta area. You know, if you go down there during the tournament, it's very prominent throughout that area that you still have a lot of fruit trees. You know, we will kind of get into a little bit more uh, when we get into the next owner. But again, he was a little bit more ambitious than productive.
1: Is, is he seeing success at this? I mean, it seems like he's doing better than Coleman.
0: Yes, he was doing a lot better than Coleman was. Uh, he was seeing some success. But as I say, some people are born with very green thumbs.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I am you know, not one of those people for the record.
0: He was not one of those people. He had grand ideas, very visionary about it. And we'll kind of get into another uh, thing here shortly uh, about his other thing that kind of stands out very iconic now. Yeah. Uh, but you know, his fruit crop didn't yield uh, very productive, you know, yield over and over again. Uh, he did have the ornamental flowers, uh, but his big contribution is his idea that we were talking about this very large idea of you know, planting fruits in the American dream. You had to have something that kind of looked over uh, this vast orchard and looked over it. And this kind of comes into the play with the Redmond Manor house. So this comes about, You know, he wants to be able to look over the property. As we talked about earlier, the elevation change, how it goes from the very top uh, there where it is now all the way down to what we see as Amen Corner is a very, you know, steep, dramatic change. Uh, But at that time, he was just wanting to overlook, you know, his crops and flowers and everything else just to make sure, you know, the local deer and everything else wasn't eating it and taking it away <laughs> it wasn't being stolen on a regular basis so. well
1: and before as we dive into this please let people know what is the redmond manor house how would they know it today
0: they would know the redmond manor house as the iconic clubhouse at augusta national today it it is the two-story uh veranda structure Uh, that's very iconic, not only for its structure, but also it is used uh, as the master's trophy, uh, the permanent master's trophy, and also uh, the replica that is given to the winner of the master's tournament.
1: And and to think it almost got bulldozed.
0: I know, that's the (laughs) other thing in history. It just makes you kind of scratch your head. You've
1: seen the plans, right, for what they were going to build, which, I mean, listen, it looks like a a Southern country club for sure with its pillars. And, uh, but I mean, it's, it's funny that we overlook something that can be so iconic and, and plan to replace it. And perhaps fortunately for all of us today, um, you know, the economy was in a tailspin and they were forced to save something they didn't want.
0: Right. But the, the, the amazing thing about the Redmond Manor house was we do have some actual dates that it actually started being built in October of 1856 uh, and was actually completed in May of 1857. And the one thing about the house that's just still amazing to me is that it was made out of concrete at the time. It's one of the first structures to be known uh, in the South to actually be made out of concrete. Now, probably the people listening are saying, well, where did they get the concrete? How did that happen? Well, guess what? You actually had rock and gravel and water from Ray's Creek that was actually used in order to build this clubhouse.
1: That is pretty amazing, right?
0: It is. So when you look at it now, when you look at uh, the clubhouse as it stands now, it's been standing there since, you know, we might as well say May of 1857. Uh, it is still the concrete structure that it was. Now it has been changed on the inside, but it was all built out of race Creek. Amazing. The and, and, and
1: this is where he lived. This was a this house.
0: Was, that is correct. This yeah. was a house. We'll kind of get into some of the designs of it. Just to let our listeners kind of understand, you know, how big it actually was. Uh, it was 50 feet wide, uh, about 50 feet long. Uh, it does raise two stories, uh, that we, that we see, uh, let's see, walls are actually 20 feet high and 18 inches thick on the first floor, and then 12 inches thick on the second floor.
1: These are crazy numbers, by the way. I mean, like, yeah. if you go into any homes that were built like in the 1850s, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times you have really short ceilings. I mean, people weren't very tall back then, right? So, right. I mean, I, I found it uncomfortable to walk into some homes that were built in the 1850s. So this was ginormous. It was,
0: and it was his vision of, you know, the new American orchard in the South. And he wanted this to be kind of that vision of this is what the vision should be for the new American South's orchard. Uh, And that's what he kept building onto. And the other thing was the verandas. I mean, with that thickness of the concrete, you know, it would stay cool during the summer heats that you have down there in the South. But it also stayed very warm. Uh, In the wintertime, you had uh, two chimneys that basically supported the two floors, and they're on opposite sides. So it it actually warmed the entire house. Uh, A lot of people talk, uh, this is something that is always an interest to me, is the uh, stairs on the outside. Uh, There were outside stairs that actually would go up to the second level. Uh, for ease and access. Those stairs actually stayed on the Augusta National Clubhouse the first, I think, 1934. Uh, and then I believe in 1935, they were finally torn down. So,
1: I mean, it, it, quite the undertaking. I mean, yes. you have these thick walls, which probably kept, you know, like you said, kept the building cool mm-hmm. in the summertime and thick walls with two chimneys that keep it warm in the wintertime.
0: Yes. And it was very basic. And one of the things that was very interesting to me after studying and researching the building was that if you look at the clubhouse now and the very left front, that very left front room, if you were looking directly at the clubhouse from Founder Circle, that room was actually intended to house uh, plants and ferns during the winter in order to keep them going wow, throughout the whole course. Cool. Wow. Yeah. So, again, you know, Redmond was all about this new idea and uh, really wanted to – and he actually ended up publishing uh, The House and the Southern Cultivator uh, and another book called Southern Country Homes about contemporary homes in the South uh, at that time. And that little book is actually – if you are able to go into the clubhouse – uh, there at Augusta National. They do actually have a copy of that book uh, and it is open directly to uh, this structure. So,
1: I mean, kind of how lucky are we to have that? You know what I mean? Like, the, mm-hmm. for him to write about it and you get to learn all these specifics about the construction and how unique it was for the time, you know, basically preserved and published.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, it, we actually have hard facts that we can go back to and look at and say, yes, this was done at this time. And it was, you know, this was the original way this structure actually looked and the way it actually functioned." So,
1: so Redmond builds this dream house for him mm-hmm. and he lives in it his
0: whole life. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> not quite, not quite. I, again, he uh, more ideas than ability. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, we we see this on a regular basis. He fell in love with this idea of producing, you know, this wonderful new fruit orchard with all these ornamental plants, you know, a new, you know, Eden of the South, if you wish. But really, you know, I think he was not very productive in his finances. Uh and he and he actually had to end up selling the he actually took a part of it which was part of the nursery and actually sold it to the Berkman's family, which will be our next kind of get into uh, it, that. We like
1: one year after the house was completed.
0: I honestly believe he built it in order to sell it to someone to show, you know, as most of us do now, we kind of prep our houses before uh, we sell them out on the open property.
1: Yeah. So, well, I, I always say the best way to do something when you're financially struggling is spend a lot of money on something and then sell it. It worked out for everybody's benefit, though, didn't it?
0: Exactly. So he he
1: moved, correct? I mean, he stayed Uh, local, but he moved.
0: He he moved very locally. Uh, He actually moved to 112-acre land next to Fruitland uh, to produce Vineland. Now, for some of our Augusta residents that are listening, that may sound very true. Uh, The area east of Augusta National is still known as uh, the Vineland neighborhood still to this day. Uh, and there's actually a little park there that is Vineland Park. Uh, his goal in that area was to actually produce uh, grapes for wine. So that's why you see a lot of that Vineland area in that area. So
1: And so that piece of property, Vineland, mm-hmm. was that a an acquisition or was that a subdivision of the original property that he purchased?
0: That was a subdivision of okay. the original. Okay.
1: Property. So we sold a, a large portion of roughly 200 acres give or take to the right. berkmans
0: to the berkmans so now this kind of goes into you know the fact we hear a lot about berkmans uh with the history of Augusta national and everything else so it was always one of those things that i wanted to delve into so let's go into a little bit of the history let's uh, do it history of uh prosper Jules aspenines berkmans and i'll probably pr- mispronounce that, so that, that it's quite the name yes it is a lot of times he will be known as Baron Berkmans. Uh, you see that in a lot of pub- publications, but that is he, uh, you know, he, he basically lived from 1830 to 1910, uh, was born October 13th, 1830 in Belgium. The Berkmans followed his father's footsteps and studied horticulture in Belgium and France, returning to the family estate at the age of 17. Um uh, in 1850, at the age of 20, Berkman's made the journey to America to pursue the possibility of moving to America. Uh, he visited several states in his journey, and mainly in the South, including Augusta. Yet his father, at the time, decided to immigrate into New Jersey uh, because he thought this was ideal for a family nursery. Yeah, very interesting. So we see that idea that he wanted to kind of move to the South, but, you know, takes his father's advice, and actually uh, immigrates into New Jersey and tries to start it there.
1: I, I'm assuming he went to New Jersey in the summertime when he made that decision.
0: Exactly. So that kind of <laughs> thinks about why he left. Uh, after experiencing the extremely cold winters in New Jersey, Berkman's decided to move the family to Augusta in 1857. Okay, so, so
1: he was there for a little bit,
0: right? He was there for a little bit. Yeah. But, not, but what he really... Worked on was really his focus was on something different in the area, and his production was more pear production. Now I know that sounds odd, probably to our listeners about pears, but prayer, but pears were actually one of the main uh, crops that were actually being cultivated in the area at that time. So.
1: And where where did they set up shop? This isn't directly here at Fruitland, correct? Is that no, correct? No,
0: it is not. It was actually right across from it, which was known as Paramount.
1: Where would that be today?
0: That would be today. So the area actually that is right across the street uh, from Augusta National. Oh, uh, over Washington? Today.
1: Like I'm over sorry, Washington Street?
0: Yeah, north of Washington Street. Actually, where they have built the new large media center, yes, yes, actually okay. the start of the new param- it was actually oh, okay. where Paramount was. Oh, okay, was. So, time.
1: so it was part of Augusta National's property, and then it wasn't, and now it is again. It's full circle.
0: It is, but you know, Bertman's was very focused on the growth. You know, he had studied for years and years and years on the development of fruits. And, you know, he saw this opportunity to basically take over Fruitlands uh, in 1857. So he took it over. He took over uh, the property from Dennis Redmond and basically combined Paramount and Fruitland into Fruitland nurseries. And they continued Redmond's vision by producing fruit trees and ornamental flowers. At the time, it was one of the largest commercial nurseries in the United States and the largest in the southeast. You know, it, it's kind of hard to kind of go over how Prosper Berkman's actually grew that property into what we associate with agriculture in a Georgia now. Uh, he was so instrumental uh, in, you know, looking at the pears and everything else in that area. But he also wanted to focus on other things he was the first to actually import and export uh fruit trees shrubs and other flowering bushes uh, he is known to have brought the privet hedge to the united states uh, now for a lot of people they're thinking have privet hedge, that doesn't mean really a lot at the first time it was actually something from uh, france that was being used as an ornament outside the house in order to trim and show i would think a lot of our uh Georgia Bulldog fans would actually enjoy that their uh, privet hedges at Sanford stadium actually originated from Augusta nationals property. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. So, yeah. You know, for all the privet hedges that, you know, came to the area to Charleston, to Savannah uh, it all actually came through this new fruitlands nursery, which was a first. Uh, yeah, and,
1: was, I mean, this is national renown at, at this point. Yes.
0: It, it's getting to that point. Yes. I mean, he is building and he is creating an empire at this time uh, because he understands world trade. He's a world, you know, had come from Belgium and France and, you know, traveled quite a bit. He understood that you have to think globally, but still act locally in essence. So
1: well said, well said.
0: So and also one of the other first in the area, he was one of the first to actually bring in the wisteria vine. Now, for some people they think, well that's not really a big deal. It really kind of is because all wisteria that is located throughout the United States can trace its roots back to that one there on the property. Uh there that was no crazy, that's wisteria. crazy. It's crazy. It is. it is. And to me it's amazing that that one, I mean people say, "Oh, it's a flower, it doesn't really mean a lot, it's a flowering bush." You know, yes, you can say that, but honestly, with the wisteria, you know, as ornamental as it blooms out in the spring and as gorgeous as it is, I mean, it really is amazing, especially when you drive over areas in, you know, Savannah or Charleston and all those areas. And you think, man, all that wisteria came directly from this property.
1: That's pretty amazing. So if you have a wisteria vine, you you may be able to trace it back to pre-Augusta National.
0: It is, yes. It traces its back, wow. and the vine is still there at the property, close to the big oak tree that's on the back. Unreal. Yeah. So, <laughs> and it
1: would be, I think, as you mentioned, the oldest in the United States.
0: It is. It truly wow. really is. That's so, crazy. yeah. And then, you know, as we talked about earlier, pears were a big focus for him, but they kind of changed a little bit. You know, he wanted to change his focus. Pears had. Become you know quite the thing in the area, and, but he was facing competition, and he needed something new uh, in order to kind of you know spring his nursery uh, into profitability. You know, in order to provide for his family and his uh, state and everything else. So, what he actually started focusing on, what we now know, is the peach, and this is kind of where we get into the peach story uh, of of, uh, Prosper Berkman's. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is that a peach at the time, uh, when Prosper was actually planting these trees were about the size. If you put your two thumbs together, kind of curl them together, uh, and put them next to each other, that was actually about the size of a peach.
1: Like an inch.
0: Yes. Not very big at all. Wow.
1: Nothing. Not what we'd consider a peach today.
0: No, not what we consider a peach today. Uh, He started producing and cultivating and growing these peaches to what we know today, the one about the size of your palm or a small baseball. You know, that is really what we see now uh, as known. And, you know, as we'll get into, uh, he is known as the father of peach culture, uh, because if it wasn't for Prosper Berkman's uh, and his thought of pushing these peaches to make them you know the best in the world. Georgia would probably not be known as the Peach State.
1: So when we say the Peach State, mm-hmm. right? When we when we we hear it, we say it. We are, are literally, basically looking back at pre-Augusta National property.
0: Yes, like, exactly. We
1: can make a correlation or connection to mm. Berkman's.
0: Exactly, it was all prosperous. Fascinating, right? His family at that time. It's crazy. Exactly, but Berkman soon became a well-known horticulturist. Like I said, he's the father of the peach culture across the South, and his nursery really took off. When he arrived in Georgia, there were approximately about a hundred thousand peach trees uh, located on family farms throughout the U.S. Uh, in 1858, he shipped the first Georgia peaches to New York by market, uh, which was a big thing at that time. I mean, you just—I mean, transportation
1: difficult. alone, right? Had to be an undertaking.
0: Exactly. By 1861, the Berkmans were producing over 300 different kinds of peaches and many other kinds of fruits and trees at Fruitland. He developed and improved the many types of peaches, including the Chinese Kling, the Alberta, the Bell, and the Thurber peaches also. But the big thing that was on there was Prosper's Thurber peach was one of the South's leading peaches. That's when we think of a peach... That is what we really see. And then Samuel Rumpf of Marshville uh, further improved the Alberta peach, uh, which became one of Georgia's primary commercial peach varieties. Rumpf also developed a peach shipment pallet designed containing a box of crates holding crates of peaches and ice, uh, which helped the Georgia peach industry grow commercially just beyond the state of Georgia. Because remember, as soon as a piece of fruit is ripe enough, it has a very limited use, like economic life after that.
1: He came up with the idea of basically shipping it crates of ice to prolong the longevity of the fruit so that it could be transported well.
0: Exactly. And this all kind of brought about how Prosper was able to get peaches out of the Georgia area and send them basically all over the United States. Because at that time, you're also starting to get into rail uh, you're also starting to see the, the canal that is actually formed now in Augusta, just south of the Savannah River uh, for transportation. Uh, so you're able to transport your goods in and out of the area uh, much easier. And you're also starting here in the next few years, you're out, actually going to start seeing rail car that's going to make it you know, tremendous ab- ability in order to transport your goods out of the area. So,
1: do, we, do we know how far those peaches could travel? We know New York. I mean,
0: how, we know how f- New York. Yeah. You know, of course, we heard some that would actually go as far west as um, Mississippi at the time. You know, we, we see a lot of kind of traveling, but you have to remember where your population density was at that time. It was in, you know, the upper area. So of course, Atlanta, you know, it's already in.
1: Yeah. You're going to go for as much of a dense population
0: as you can. Like the state of
1: Iowa was founded in 1847. Probably not a lot of people in Iowa that are searching out peaches at the time.
0: Exactly. So, uh, but no, you see a lot that would actually go to New York and, you know, there is thought that maybe some of them did go to Chicago, but that was really from travel. Uh, you know, you had individual people that would pick things up and take them. But really, the advent of the railroad and everything with ice cars and ice boxes really changed uh, that entire shipment production. So, But as he continued, and Prosper was not only important to the peach industry in the area, but, you know, he wrote a lot for the Georgia Horticultural Society. Uh, He published a lot of different articles, uh, and he was well-known in the area and surrounding areas in South Carolina, uh, Georgia. And you really have to go back and look at what he ended up doing. So we talked about that original 100,000 peach trees. It ended up being more than 3 million peach trees in Augusta, according to the Berkman's family documents that they had. So if you think about that growth and all those trees and those orchards, I mean, it really was a peach production orchard at that time. I mean, and it's just unreal to think of it now, but as right. drive through the, go ahead.
1: No, I just said, right. You think of, you yeah. know, the, the fairways covered with peach trees. If you think of Augusta National now, it's hard to imagine.
0: Mm-hmm. It really is. But the other thing that Prosper was well known for uh, is that he had a mail-out catalog uh, for a lot of his uh, varieties of fruits, uh, ornamental flowers and things. In the 1880s, uh, Fruitland was mailing out approximately 25,000 catalogs a year, uh, many of which were overseas. Uh, The Fruitland catalog read, "Uh, we shipped almost every part of the United States and our foreign trade reaches such distance points as Australia, China, Japan, Africa, East and West Indies, Brazil, the Bermudas and every section of Europe, North and South America.
1: So, would he be the the catalogs was it primarily for seeds?
0: It was. It was for seeds, but it was also for the plants also.
1: Gotcha. Uh, I mean, obviously, he's not shipping pears, you know, that's that was, <laughs> not going to travel well. So, you're looking at the actual plants, cargo of plants and seeds to basically, you know, sell a variety of plant life, vegetation, and fruit trees all over the world, basically.
0: Exactly. And that's his, you know, again, think globally, act locally uh, mentality that he had. Uh, you know, he wanted to share with the world, you know, you know, forgive the pun, the fruits of his labor. Yeah. In uh, the 1880s, though. I mean, it's really remarkable. It really is. It is remarkable. But again, he was just, just a businessman that you know, was able to take this production of fruits, vegetables and ornamental flowers and just ship them, you know, worldwide. And, you know, we kind of see that now with the Masters, with it being an international tournament. You know, they work out of Augusta. You know, everybody knows where Augusta National is at Augusta. But, you know, they also know that international players are a big part of what's brought into the area. So it kind of falls back onto this idea again of this international mentality, uh, from this local, uh, fruitland nursery. Uh, there. I love that parallel. Yeah, I really do. Exactly, Love that. You know, Prosper Berkman was so well known, uh, during this time that he was making all these fruits and vegetable or well, at least fruits and ornamental flowers, Uh, that he was actually nominated as the secretary of agriculture, uh, but wanted to continue with his own production at the nursery. You know, he thought that the idea was nice that he was, you know, being nominated for such a, you know, huge role, but he actually just said, you know, I'd rather focus on the production, uh, for my family and, you know, kind of kept to the business there at the Fruitlands nursery. Crazy life. Correct. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. And then uh, Prosper Bergman's, uh, he he also founded the Georgia Horticulture Society uh, in 1876, serving as the organization's president until 1910. Uh, Bergman's was a lifetime member of the American Pomological Society, which is basically the study of fruit and fruit tree production. And studied and served as the editor of Farmer and Gardener, a horticulture journal, for several years. So, not only was he a successful businessman and you know an orchard runner, but he actually helped other people kind of build,
1: educated, right? Spread spread the information. And what a remarkable man! I like I prior to reading your some of your research, I I really had no idea. I mean, obviously, we've all heard of Berkman's, but you don't Mm -hmm. realize the reach. You know, the international reach of of what he brought to Augusta.
0: Exactly. And I think for a lot of people in the Augusta area that have been there for a long time, they understand uh, what, you know, Prosper Berkman's and the family actually meant to the area. Uh, that's one of the big reasons that the road that – I that kind of outlines the property that we now know as Augusta National was known as Berkman's road. Uh, It was named for Prosper Berkman's and all he did for the area. And then also, you know, there's a very special place there now, which is known as Berkman's place uh, at Augusta National. Uh, It's a very high end facility and it kind of brings in this idea in my research too, that I found out that Prosper as much as he loved you know, Fruitland, he also enjoyed entertaining. Uh, there were very large, extravagant uh, picnics on the grounds, which he would bring in locals and friends, and you would basically just have uh, lunch on the grounds. Uh, and Everybody would be dressed in their finest clothes. They would enjoy, they would sit out on the veranda of the uh, manor house and enjoy the breeze as it blew through. So, you know, kind of looking back at that history, uh, it's kind of interesting now to see what Augusta national has done with Berkman's place and, you know, kind of catering towards those individuals that have those, uh, tickets and badges for that.
1: Now, now you're making me sad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to Augusta. I'll be going to Augusta for the masters. I have played Augusta national. I have never been in Berkman's.
0: Yeah. Ber- I will. Amazing. Say Ber- yeah. At Berkman's is a unique facility. Uh, I won't go too much into it, uh, maybe off record, but we will cover <laughs> some of that. But
1: it, it, I assume there's it pays some homage to the family that made a lot of this possible.
0: It really does. Uh, if you go into uh, the actual facility, uh, there are a lot of the catalogs that you will see from uh, the Berkman's Nursery.
1: And, and these catalogs, by the way, I, I've seen some of them. They're, they're gorgeous productions. They they're are. artistic they're and beautiful and, and they're stunning.
0: They are. And, you know, Prosper was also, you know, like I said, he was a very good businessman, but he understood marketing uh, and marketing meant very vibrant colors, very br- vibrant plants. And we see that now with a lot of the azaleas that are planted in the area. He actually uh, he's not the uh True original cultivator of azaleas, he just made them better, and that's nowhere more apparent than on the thirteenth uh, hole, which is named Azalea. Uh, as you see them built out around that hole and the areas around uh, the thirteenth tee box, which has now been expanded, and around the twelfth hole also.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, you see these catalogs. I, I just go back to this, and it was no small extent uh, expense at t- printing 25,000 catalogs is one thing, but printing them all in color at that time was a huge
0: yes. expense. It really was
1: in really a time, was. you know, it would have taken time to actually print every single page the way they laid down ink back then.
0: Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah. But, but he understood that if you send out quality and you show people what to expect and, you know, he believed in his product. I mean, Granted, some people don't have the best green thumbs, but he would actually back his product. Uh, And, you know, the way that you do that is, again, through marketing and, you know, guaranteeing and actually showing people this is directly what you have, especially uh, people in the area showing them on the grounds Uh, at that time when it was Fruitlands Nursery. so. So what happened next? Well, as all good things come throughout our lifetime, what goes up must come down unfortunately on november 6 1910 uh, prosper berkmans passed away at the age of 80. following his death his three sons carried on the business Uh, his oldest son uh, louis uh, became president of the company Uh, his second son robert craig served as the vice president and youngest son prosper jr was secretary and treasurer Uh, now both louis and ali were active landscaping designers and carried out Fruitland's landscaping department successfully. Lewis was also the garden designer for Radio City Music Hall in New York and designed numerous golf courses around the country.
1: Wow. So they had the green thumb as well.
0: They did. You know, it was just, it kind of, forget the old adage, it ran in the family. So. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but also, they, with Prosper passing away, they tried to do the best. Uh, that they could with the property. You know, his knowledge and uh, work ethic and everything else kind of pushed it. The biggest thing that came through was in 1912, uh, the Berkmans uh, struck the largest peach deal ever made in Georgia. Uh, According to the Augusta Chronicles report, the brothers sold the entire peach crop to a New Jersey firm for an estimated $100,000 or $3,101,000 in 2023 uh, dollars that we would know today. So yeah, they were very successful, you know, also had a lot of money, but, you know, family strife does happen in businesses sometimes. Uh while the brothers worked well together, uh there was a shift in the control of the Fruitland property after the death of their father due to his will, uh which was left to his second wife and sons. Uh the family business was eventually shut down.
1: So the second wife and sons, those sons weren't these 3.
0: No, that is correct. Interesting. These were the so Uh, And then in 1918, less than a decade uh, after Berkman's death. So, you know, by 1910, you know, you see kind of a rundown of the property. And then by 1918, it's just kind of, it's basically on just whatever it produces is what will grow, but we're not going to push anymore on the
1: property. Mm. What a quick turn, right?
0: It really was. I mean, it was less than two decades. It was. It was vision and hard work that kind of really pushed it. So when that property
1: changed hands, did the three brothers basically go their own way? Is that how that happened when it switched to you know, the second wife?
0: Well, they kind of still stuck around the property. Uh, most of them did go out to other Callings, you know, Lewis actually went to Charleston for quite a bit. I think uh, this is something I'm still researching, so I don't want to call no put you're it into the fact. But I think you know he was actually helping a lot of the de- design of the gardens there in Savannah uh, that we know now. Those beautiful gardens between uh, the areas in Savannah, Georgia. So, but again, that's still have to dig deep as we yeah. know any history.
1: Unbelievable. Here.
0: But as we know, uh, as the early 20th century progressed, uh, Augusta was becoming a small winter retreat for the wealthy Northerners. In 1925, Miami hotel mogul J. Perry, J. Perry Commodore Stoltz saw the opportunity uh, and tried to attempt to purchase Fruitland property, and attempt to build his winter resort. Uh, like, the Augusta just Fruitland so we're
1: clear, on the property of Augusta National. Exactly. There would have been a potential golf resort... Mm -hmm. on the property of augusta national
0: yes that you could call and book a tea time and actually get onto the you
1: too can go play augusta national today (laughs) call the commodore (laughs) (laughs) and did it have a name they had a name correct
0: it did uh it was supposed to be the augusta fleetwood resort so probably not the same ring as augusta national golf club now
1: no and i mean like so how did this so construction started is that fair
0: I'm not really into the history of that time period, Uh, Connor. I know you know some history on it. If you want to, I mean, it's pretty
1: amazing. I I just think I I am. I'm just absolutely fascinated by this caveat in history that you know. I I think uh, there's another podcast out here that went into details. We won't you know steal their thunder at all, but uh, I just think it's absolutely fascinating that prior to Bobby Jones and Clifford Roberts, that someone saw. The ability of this property mm-hmm. and was basically going to take it over and build a winter golf destination on the very ground. I mean, and if you look at the trees around the property, you've got to think that some of these holes would be similar, at least in location, exactly. from where they are today. Because, I mean, mm-hmm. there were crops that would have been removed, right? And there were large trees that did exist. And, you know, there were lanes where you know, you could see a golf course. And so it's fascinating. And as I understand it, and I have not done a great depth of detail, uh, Jay Perry, the Commodore, if you will, luck would have it, I suppose, not unless you want to play Augusta National and you could have played it as a resort. A hurricane hit and took out, I think his Southern Hotel Resort Mm. and pressed him to basically delay and then walk away from the purchase of the Fruitland, you know, property. Yeah. And then yep. ti- as timing would have it, of course, then 1929, the stock market, you know, blows yep. up and, and we get a little lucky, right? I mean, well, you know, if you love Augusta National and, and the Masters, you get a little lucky that Bobby Jones decides to retire in 1930.
0: Exactly. So, yeah, he retired in 1930. 30. Uh, I know that there was a committee and I, I do wonder about the history, you know, with – with Lewis Berkman's actually designing, you know, the designing there in New York City, I'm wondering if he didn't have some types to Clifford Roberts. You know, that's part of history that we'll never know. Uh, but you do wonder if, you know, that kind of played into it. I know a lot of people were upset at the time that Bobby was not going to build close to Atlanta to, at the time uh, that he actually had picked this. But in 1931, the property was eventually sold uh for the reported amount of $70,000 in that time period's uh, funds to establish a cor- golf course uh, that has forever been placed on the map, uh, which is known as Augusta National. Prosper's two sons, L.A. and Allie Berkman's, returned to Fruitland property and actually assisted in the landscape design of the course uh, that we know today. As That's cool,
1: course. right? I mean, it's kind of a full circle.
0: And it, it's kind of important, too. And, Connor, I think it's one of those things in history that it's important. And if you go back to the first Augusta National Invitational program that was used, that's actually— I, I literally have it in front of me, by the
1: way. I mean, like, literally in my hands. Okay. You're talking uh, about the—when uh, they tell the history of the property a little bit. I bet, was they it? do.
0: And, but you also see that Louis Berkman's was one of the first members of Augusta National Golf Club. And Lewis was the general manager and treasurer for the first few years of Augusta National Golf Club. So it's important to know that the Berkmans still, even though it was purchased from them, they still continued to help Bobby Jones and Clifford Roberts kind of design and help build this golf course for what his vision was going to be so
1: and, and you you mentioned in your research that he played a big role in some of the holes, like specifically their names.
0: He did. Uh, he worked with a lot of the naming of each holes uh, and each one of the ornamental plants on the property. Uh, we all know the famous azalea, the golden bell, uh, and including the magnolia trees, uh, and the redbud and dogwoods uh, that are all over the property. You know, I always, it's always amazing to me. People that walk into the property for the first time are always just awestruck by, you know, just how beautiful the flowers are and the dogwoods and you know how if you look down magnolia lane uh, how magnificent it actually is and that has been there ever since you know almost the time of dennis redmond and prosper berkman's so augusta national really has been on the forefront of change but they really have kind of kept to those ideas of history uh when it comes to when it was the berkman's property
1: so I, I suppose folks if you're if you're going to the Masters this year and you're walking down the fairways and you're enjoying each hole and its beauty, uh, each one named after after uh, a different plant or a different flower. I, I just, It's really phenomenal. And I, I just love the fact that they still to this day tie it in, whether it's at Berkman's or as you stroll down Magnolia Lane or walk down each fairway, that it's embraced the history, not just of Augusta National and the Masters, but the Berkmans.
0: Exactly. I mean, they, I think they saw the, I think they saw the potential and what Berkmans actually did, not only for Augusta, but for agriculture in the South. And they said, you know, this is a good idea, but we need to continue it on in the world of golf. And I think that has, been ever-growing. It's taken a lot of change, uh, but we see it now in growing golf with the drive chip and putt, and more recently, you know, the Augusta National Women's Amateur. I think it's just something that there's a constant push to always be better than what we were, Uh, and that's the way I think Prosper originally was when it was Fruitland Nurseries, and I think that's actually what kind of drives Augusta National and its members uh, each year during the tournament. so As we see with Augusta National uh, continuing to grow, and that's the thing, it, it changes, but it kind of goes back to the same. A lot of people say, well, Magnolia Lane, is it's the same magnolias that have always been there. Unfortunately, that's incorrect. Oh, uh, really? Some of those magnolias have been replaced. I think uh, in 2012, one of the magnolia trees that actually had coming in, to some uh, disease and damage and they took it down. And I think the club actually did something nice for its members and actually had some bowls turned. Yes. I've seen uh, some
1: of those bowls. Exactly, amazing, right? Oh, 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 yeah, to have was... one. Uh, to, oh, to have one in the golfus. Is...
0: yes, exactly. <laughs> but no, we also see it that, you know, they did change whole names around a little bit. Uh, and some of those have still kind of held on. To me, one of the most famous is actually four uh, that you have out there.
1: I mean, Spanish dagger, to lose that name.
0: Well, right now it's flowering and crab apple, but it was actually originally, it was originally named palm. There is still that one singular palm tree uh, to the right of the green. So for any of the Yeah, uh, I've, you know, I've been this,
1: there more times than, well, not more times than I can count. I can probably count them, but I- Never seem to look. I'm a moron. What's going on oh. with me? There's a palm tree still there.
0: The palm tree is still there. Even though the hole is named different now, the members have actually uh kept the palm tree there to the right of the green, there at number four, and it is the only palm tree completely on the property with all the other trees. So
1: that's so cool. Well, Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, I think people are really going to enjoy this. I mean, I think you can get the history of the Masters almost anywhere. You can Google it. Uh, you can watch videos on it. You can watch the Masters, and it'll tell you bit by bit. But where else are you going to hear the story of how it came to be and what was there before? I just think, I don't know about everybody else, but I find it absolutely fascinating to get an idea of you know, the Native American culture, and then all of these people coming in with the same idea, really, right? You know, we're going to do something different than cotton on this property. And, you know, obviously, a couple couldn't make it work. And then the Berkmans came in and with their own genius and green thumb, really made it into something that we get to appreciate today, whether you're at the tournament, or you're watching it on TV, something spectacular. On the downside you can't just walk in and book it on a resort and go play it. Like
0: you know. exactly, that is, that is the <laughs> negative side. But I do I, I will always say this and I'm I've actually found out today that this is true. You know, really, you know, we all love the you know, the history of Augusta and the traditions uh, and everything else, but I will say just enjoy the history that's on the property. I mean, we all try to soak it in and enjoy it, but really Kind of love it, even all the way down to the concessions. You know, the history of the concessions is a big thing. I mean, to actually have an ice cream peach sandwich on the property where pe- peaches like became the main crop of Georgia is really just phenomenal. And that kind of ties into the history too of when cows and turkeys were actually grazing on the property during World War II. Uh, you've got that dairy production for the ice cream. So,
1: it's the little things that count, right? It is, yeah. It's the details that Berkman did so well mm-hmm. that continue today on the property. Exactly. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Greg. I really appreciate you coming on. We'll do it again. Let's find another topic. When you write this book, mm-hmm. it's going to be phenomenal, right? <laughs> I'm all in on that. I will promote well, the hell out of it.
0: To listen to my voice with the uh, books.
1: <laughs> yeah, your voice is perfect. Trust me. All
0: right. Well, thank I used you, to God. say I, I was, was in
1: communications way back in the day film actually and uh one of my professors said to me connor you have a face for radio and a voice for unemployment
0: oh, very
1: nice. <laughs> <laughs> one of the best comments i think i've ever got i just i i, I this first time i've ever I think said it on the podcast but i always thought that was brilliant
0: no that that's fine. As we as we all know, we usually have our other jobs, but our hobbies uh, always drive us and everything. And I really hope the listeners uh, that kind of tune in and listen to this have really enjoyed it. And you know, I, I always think a lot of uh, the masters and the history of the property and everything else. And I hope people can just appreciate it.
1: Well, Greg, I'll say this too. I mean, as you come upon new discoveries, you just let me know so we can let you know a vast amount of people know about them because I think a lot of people are fascinated by this.
0: Yeah, they really are. And again, a lot of this was kind of a high-level overview. We've kind of dug into some different dates and things of that nature, but really, I mean, it boils down to Dennis Redman's vision, Berkman's ingenuity and drive to make it better, and then, of course, Bobby Jones and Clifford Roberts to make it is what it is today. Fantastic. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Connor. Appreciate it, sir.
1: Before we end our show tonight... I want to once again, thank you for listening. The Talking Golf History Show prides itself in sharing history like you've never heard it before. I try to find stories, even when they are a bit esoteric, that you aren't likely to find on other podcasts. This one admittedly was 99.8% non-golf, but I hope you appreciate the backstory of one of the most famous golf courses in the world. Thank you again for listening until next time yours in golf history this
0: is connor t lewis